Sunday mornings, you know that this is what we've been doing on Sunday mornings for the last month or so. Um, as we came into the new year, I wanted to move back into Mark on Sunday mornings, but there were still, I don't know, at least three, three for sure messages that were really still pressing on my heart from this passage or from this thought of being a, a people of the book. And so we're moving this to Wednesday night. We should pick up in Isaiah in February again. As I see it, we'll have three messages for sure um, on this idea. I think the fourth week we may have a type of prayer. Our prayer focus may be on understanding God's Word. And then we'll move back into Isaiah come February. Now in Revelation 13, details the rise of the Antichrist. And Revelation 13 teaches us when the Antichrist rises to power, basically everyone in the world follows after him. They embrace his teaching and they begin to worship him as God. Now this this worshiping of him and following after him is a fulfillment of a New Testament prophecy. Second Thessalonians 2 says about the Antichrist that he is the one who's coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not accept the love of the truth to be saved. Now, so the Antichrist will come. He will rise up to power. He will be empowered by Satan to do signs and wonders. They're false signs and wonders because they're not really signs and wonders of God. This deception of wickedness, it takes hold in those who are Perishing those who are lost. But notice the last phrase. This is why these false signs and wonders take root in their heart. This is why they believe his deception. is because they did not love the truth. Did not accept the love of the truth. So as to be saved. So when the Antichrist rises to power. Those who have lived their lives. Rejecting the truth of God's word. Did not love the truth so as to be saved through the truth. They will be deceived and they will fall for the satanic deception. Now something about this passage is that it doesn't merely teach us about what will happen in that day. It also teaches us what does happen in our day. The same principle of that passage is true in our day as well. There is deception of wickedness, satanic false prophets and teachings going on. And some people reject them and some people embrace them. The reason people embrace them is because they did not accept the love of the truth so as to be saved. They have rejected the truth of God's word. They have rejected the truth of the gospel. They have left themselves open to satanic deception. And when it comes along, it tickles their fancy in such a way that they embrace it and they are led astray. Now, chances are we all know people who have some odd spiritual beliefs. And that when we hear them explain what they believe and why they believe it, it sounds almost like something coming from bizarro world. And we wonder... How could they believe something that is so clearly wrong? And the answer is there in 2 Thessalonians. It is because they rejected Jesus and they rejected the gospel and they rejected the truth of God's word. And in doing so, they opened themselves up to satanic deception. Now, the lesson in in this passage is how important it is. How we respond to God's word. 
the way we respond to God's word really demonstrates our devotion to God. Right? And this is, normally we don't get to the key truth before we get to the main passage, but this is our key truth for the night, what we want to understand. Our response to the word of God reveals our devotion to the God of the word. Now, again, before we get to our main passage, I want to lay the foundation for this and show you it's true. Show you it's right. Because this is a strong statement. And many in our day would reject it. Many in our day would say, no, no, I don't have to uh, uh, respond to this. I don't have to obey this. I don't have to do it. And yet I, I really love God. God's number one in my life. You can't tell me he's not. And so it would be easy for people to push back against the wording that strong. But when we come to the totality of God's word, we see this idea taught over and over again. One place in particular I think is really strong is in the book of Amos. It says, this is what the Lord said. For three offenses of Judah and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. Their lies have also led them astray, those which their fathers followed. So I will send fire upon Judah and it will consume the citadels in Jerusalem. Now, the people. I found this on the web. No, I don't need your help. Um, the people that Amos was written to. If you had asked them, have you rejected the law of the Lord? They would have said absolutely not. Right. Because keep in mind, Amos is a prophet of God. He is addressing the people of Jerusalem. He is addressing the people of God. Right? These aren't people who are worshiping Baal. These aren't the Amorites or the Perizzites or the Jebusites. These are Israelites. These are the people who are supposed to be devoted to the God of the Bible. If you had asked them, they would have declared their faith and devotion to God. They would have declared their their love and their devotion to the law and the word of God. And yet, despite their professions, they did not keep his statutes. And God said that this decision of not keeping his statutes was a rejection of his word. And as they did this, they convinced themselves it would be OK. That's where the lies came into being. They came up with all of these reasons why it would be okay to disobey God's word in, in this area or in that area. They believed lies that made their disobedience okay. This mindset led them astray and their fathers. It's their fathers that followed it and taught it to their children. It passed on from one generation to the next generation. The Bible is the word of God. Part of what this means is what God's word says about any given issue is what God himself says about that very issue. And God makes it clear again in Amos. That we cannot walk with him while disobeying and thus rejecting his word. God said Do two people walk together unless they have agreed to meet. We cannot walk with God while doing something he has said we should not do. We cannot walk with God while refusing to do something he has said we must do. But God is going in a particular direction and he's not going to change that direction for us. He expects us to change our direction for him. That's what repent is. God is going in the way of the word. 
And if we go in any other way than the way of the word, we are not walking with the Lord. Our response to the word of God reveals our devotion to the God of word. Many people in our culture today hold the Bible in high esteem. If asked, they might affirm that it is the word of God. They treat their Bibles with the utmost respect. They often keep them in places of honor in their homes. Despite the way they profess to view the Bible, it is rarely read and seldom obeyed. While their mouths profess to believe the Bible and they profess to be devoted to God, their lives demonstrate something different. Their attitude toward the word of God is very simply an extension of their attitude toward God himself. How can we ensure we don't have this attitude because it is so prevalent in our day? How can we ensure our response to the word of God reveals a deep devotion to the God of the word? Open your Bible to Second Chronicles 34. It's page 358 if you have a pew Bible. The title of the message is Responding to God's Word. And if you found that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to read certain parts of it before we get started. 2 Chronicles 34 says in verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, the carved images and the cast metal images. Now drop down to verse eight. Now in the eighteenth year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house He sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, Messiah, Messiah, an official of the city, Joah, the son of Jehoaz, the secretary to repair the house of the Lord, his God. They came to Hilkiah, the high priest, and gave him the money that was brought to the house of God, which the Levites from the doorkeepers had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim and from all the remnant of Israel, from all Judah and Benjamin and the inhabitants. Of Jerusalem. Now drop down to verse 14. But when they were bringing out the money which had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Hilkiah responded and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Then Shaphan brought the book to the king and reported further word to the king, saying, Everything. That was entrusted to your servants, they are doing. They have also emptied out the money which was found in the house of the Lord and have handed it over to supervisors and the workmen. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe informed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book. Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you, Father, for your word, the guidance it gives us. Uh, Lord, we are amazed, Father, at all that you have done.
to make it possible for us to have your word in our hands, in our language tonight. Father, we do want to be a people of the book. We want it to be the foundation of our lives, as Jesus said we should have it. We want to be sure that we are living in a way that demonstrates our deep devotion to you. Tonight, as we look at the story in this passage, let us learn the lessons that we're supposed to learn. Let us take this word to heart. Let it transform our lives. Let your spirit make it living and active. And let our lives reflect this sort of a deep devotion to you that we see here. Have your way in our hearts. Have your way in our minds. Have your way in all of our lives. Fill me with your spirit tonight and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. And I would speak your words and your ways for your glory. We ask all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. So this story is one of the great stories of a revival in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel had drifted far from the Lord as they often did. This had been gone on for a long period of time as it often did. For two generations, wickedness prevailed among God's people. They had given themselves over to the worship of the gods of the pagans around them and embraced the lifestyle and the immorality that accompanied such worship. They had abandoned the word of God. They had abandoned the worship of God. And as we saw in verse 14, God's word was all but lost uh, in this day. The temple was in deep disrepair. They were in a deep spiritual darkness and God's judgment was upon them. It was hovering over them and about to fall on them. And in this time, God raised up a young king, surprisingly young, named Josiah. His devotion to God enabled him to lead the nation back to God. Under his leadership, they experienced a deep and a genuine revival. And the revival began with Josiah's response to the word of God. But Josiah's response to the word of God was merely a reflection of his already deep devotion to the God of the word. So what we want to do is we want to learn about how to ensure our response to the word of God reveals our deep devotion to the God of the word. So there's three ways, three things to learn tonight. One is we must be devoted to the God of the word. But you can't help but notice that Josiah had a priority commitment to God. Now, there are two primary ways this commitment is seen. First is in the fact that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and didn't deviate from it in the least little bit. Look at verse two. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, walked in the ways of his father, David, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. For the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father, David. In the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah, Jerusalem, and the high places, the ashram, the carved images, and the cast metal images. He did all of this because he began to, to seek the Lord God of his fathers. And he had this deep devotion to God, and so he determined to do everything he knew God wanted him to do. He knew it was God's will to seek God, so he did. He knew that the the pagan worship in Israel was not God's will, so he purged it to the best of his abilities from the land. 
He did it as completely and as thoroughly as it was possible to be done. He did it without question. He did it without hesitation. He gave himself wholly to making sure God and God alone, Yahweh and Yahweh alone, was worshipped in the land of Judah. Secondly, we see his devotion to God and his commitment to the temple. The temple had been in disrepair and had been neglected in the time of his father and his grandfather. And as Josiah began to live for the Lord, he knew restoring the temple was a key part of what needed to be done. The temple was central to the worship of Yahweh. Everything kind of revolved around that place. The glory of the Lord was sort of seen. And what the temple looked like. The glory of the Lord was sort of seen as the the sacrifices rose up as a sweet smelling savor to the Lord. So in verses 8 through 13, he has everything done that needs to be done so the house of the Lord can be repaired. Now the image in this passage is essentially that it's just in ruins. It is just rubble and filled with trash. And it's being cleaned out and built back up. And he is doing all of this because of his deep devotion to the Lord. Now, part of what makes this, in my mind, so challenging is Josiah did this without really having God's word. Right? We will get to it in verse in a minute, but in verse 14, they found it. So all of these years, God's word was kind of like put in something and covered with trash and gone and neglected. What Josiah was basically living out was just what had been passed down to him. So imagine you raised in Sunday school. But you, as you get older, the Bible's gone and you don't have one. And and you're trying to live for the Lord and do His will just by what you remember. From learning in church and in Sunday school and what mom and dad and granny might have taught you. That's what Josiah is doing. He doesn't have God's word to consult. He's just doing what he knows, what he remembers to do what needed to be done. Now, chances are with this, the the point I want to bring up here is that chances are all of us know more of God's word and we're living out. Chances are there are places in our lives where God has clearly spoken about what we're to do. Or what we're not to do or how we're to respond or how we're to react that we are not living out. And if this is the case, and, and I do feel confident this is probably all of us in one way or another. Our, our greatest need isn't necessarily to learn more of God's word. Our greatest need is to live out. What we already know we're supposed to do. A a deep devotion to God. Isn't necessarily seen in how much of God's word we know. As much as it's seen in how much of God's word we live out. Knowing all of God's word. And not doing much of God's word. Does not declare much about our deep devotion to God. We know this from the Pharisees in the Gospels. They knew the Bible better than anyone of anyone alive at the time. And yet their problem wasn't that they didn't know God's word or they even that they studied God's word. Jesus said, you search the scriptures. Their problem was that they wouldn't do 
what God's word told them to do. A deep devotion to the God of the word will always result in our living out what we know from the word of God. We live it out to the very best of our abilities. All of this about being a person of the word. It's really not about the word. It's about the God of the word. And we must first have a deep devotion to him. He is central. The book leads us to the person that the book is testifying about. So we must ensure first and foremost, we are devoted to the God of the word. Secondly, we must take the word of God seriously. As the temple restoration begins, they make a wonderful discovery. Verse 14 and 15, they find the law of the Lord. When they were bringing out the money which had been brought to the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Hilkiah responded and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. I always am amazed when I read this passage at exactly how far Israel had gotten away from God. They had gotten so far from God, they had legitimately lost his word. And as they repaired and as they restored the temple, they made the amazing treasure, the amazing discovery of God's word. They immediately take the word to the king. And verse 18, Shaphan the scribe informed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book. And he reads from the book in the presence of the king. Now, there's a lot in the Old Testament they might have found. But this calls it the, the law of the Lord given by Moses. And that specifically would probably limit it to the first four, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But given the king's response, I think there's a particular part of Deuteronomy they found and read to the king here. In Deuteronomy 27 and 28, there are what is called blessings and cursings. And in the blessing and cursing section, God promises blessings to the Israelites for obeying him. And he lays out what obedience would look like. And then at the same time, God promises curses that would befall them for disobeying him. And he lays out what disobedience would look like. It is my guess this is what they read to Josiah at this point. And I say that because of the way Josiah responded. He hears the words of the law and he tears his clothes. Tearing of the clothes was a sign of remorse and sorrow and distress. The king, what the king has heard from God's word has left him distressed. He realizes it goes on to say that they have violated the word of God. Look at verse 21. Go inquire of the Lord for me and of those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book which have been found. For the wrath of the Lord which has been poured out upon us is great because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to act in accordance with everything written in the book. So whatever the king heard caused him to realize that the problems they were having was God's hand upon them against them. He realizes this wrath is upon them because 
They have not acted in accordance with everything written in the book. They have not kept their end of the covenant. And so God was keeping his end of the covenant by pouring judgment out upon them. He's terrified about this coming judgment and what God has promised about the judgment. Now, something that's interesting. God sends them to go and search out to the Lord. Right? They go to a prophetess named Huldah. To ask what needs to be done if there is any hope. And something you notice in this is that Josiah takes full responsibility for the sins of the nation. He doesn't try to rationalize their disobedience. He doesn't try to minimize their disobedience. He doesn't try to justify their disobedience. Gosh, he doesn't even... Mentioned that they didn't even have God's word all of these years as a way to say, maybe give us a little break here, God. Instead, Josiah lets the full weight of God's word fall on him. And it just has a massive impact upon his life. This is the picture of someone who takes God's word seriously. This is the picture of someone Who takes God's word so seriously that when their life is out of sync with what God's word says, it terrifies them. Reminds me of what God said to the prophet Isaiah. For my hand has made these things, so all these things come into being, declares the Lord. But I will look at this one. The one who is humble, contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. I love the picture of trembling at God's word. And, and in light of what we're looking at, and in light of what God says through Isaiah, the question we all have to ask, do we tremble at God's word? How do we respond when our lives are out of sync with God's word? Let's say we go home tonight and we open the Bible to read our daily devotions. And it says something and we know immediately our lives don't fit with that. We're doing what God has said in his word we ought not be doing. We're not doing what God is saying in his word we we ought to be doing. How are we going to respond in that moment? Will we rationalize the fact our lives are out of sync with God's word? Will we minimize the significance and the seriousness of our lives being out of sync with God's word? Will we justify the reason our lives are out of sync at God's word? Or will we tremble at the fact the holy God of the Bible has said there's a way we ought to live and we're not living in that way? Let me give you some examples. Just a couple. Talking about our our mouths, our tongues. James says, with it, we bless the Lord, our uh, we bless our Lord and father. Now, bless. And when it talks about God, it's talking about speaking well of him. So we sing songs of praise. We bless him. God is great and God is wonderful. God is awesome. We are speaking well of him. And then with it, we curse people. Now, curse there doesn't mean profanity. Right? It's not talking about using cuss words, what we would call cuss words necessarily. Can, but that's not the limit. What it's really talking about is saying 
bad things about people. So in in one moment, we're praising God. God is great. God is awesome. God is wonderful. And in the, the next minute, we're talking badly about another person made in the image of God. They're stupid. They're fat. I hate them. I don't like those people. They disgust me. I can't stand to to see them. But whatever it might be. And then we come to God's word, which says. These things ought not to be. That blessing and cursing should not flow from the same mouth. And we know. That blessing and cursing do flow from our mouth. What do we do in that moment? How do we respond? Do we rationalize it by saying we're just realists and we're only saying what's true about the person? Do we minimize it by saying, well, I only tell these people to my spouse. I I don't say it public. I don't post it on Facebook or anything like that. Do we justify it by saying, I've heard them say worse things. Or do we tremble at the fact we are doing something God's word said should not be done? Another one. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility, consider one another more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. Do we constantly need people to praise us for what we've done? If they don't, do we bring attention to it so they will say, well done, that was wonderful. But with humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. I mean, if we were honest, in the way we live our lives in general... Would we say we were selfish or selfless? Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. So do we esteem others as better than ourselves? Do we care about what's going on in their lives, care about the things going on that are involved with them? Or are we only concerned about us because we're more important than they are? Now, keep in mind, this passage, the primary context isn't written with our spouse and our children in mind. That Philippians isn't the book to husbands and wives. Now, certainly it would apply in the home. But it's written to a church and it's just talking about people in general. So. It's not just saying do this at home in that family unit of people who love you and who you love. It's saying this is how you live your life at Walmart, on the job, at your hobbies. Everywhere you go, this is how you you live your life. So the question, if, if this passage is not how we are, how do we respond If we're not that. Do we 
rationalize by saying that if we don't toot our own horn, nobody else will? Do we minimize by pointing out some worse thing other people do? Do we justify by saying that's just how I am? Or do we tremble at the fact we're doing something God's word says we aren't supposed to do? Rationalizing, minimizing, and justifying our sin and disobedience is not okay. A deep devotion to the God of the word, it will always lead us to take the word of God seriously and to tremble when our lives are out of sync with his word. And then finally, let the word of God break us. So once Josiah hears these words, he realizes judgment is coming and it's because of their disobedience. Again, he doesn't rationalize, he doesn't minimize, he doesn't justify. He doesn't start talking about how the people before them were bad. He doesn't explain that the world was different when Moses wrote these words. He doesn't say anything about how bad the Amorites are and that they're way worse than the Israelites. He doesn't do any of that. Rather, he is terrified the fact they have sinned against the God who has saved them and has made them a nation. And so he sends out a group of people, verse 20. I'm not going to try to read all those names. And he sends them out to go inquire of the Lord and find out if there's any hope, if there's any way to avoid the judgment to come. Is there any mercy to be found in God? What can they do to avert the wrath that is coming? If you look down at verse 23, the prophetess Hilda, Hulda, gives a message. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says. Behold, I'm bringing evil on this place and on its inhabitants. And all the curses written in the book, which they have read in the presence of the king of Judah... Since they have abandoned me and have burned incense to other gods, they may provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. My wrath will be poured out on this place and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what you shall say to him. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says in regards to the word which you have heard. Because your heart was tender, And you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants. And because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes and wept before me. I have indeed heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. So your eyes will not see the evil which I am bringing on this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back the word to the king. God's word to Josiah, judgment is coming. But in a lot of ways, what God says is there will be a postponement of it throughout your lifetime. Because of your devotion to me, because of the way you take my word very seriously, because of the fact that you have humbled yourself before me and have let God's word, my word, break you. I will hold it off 
until you are gathered up in peace, and then it will come. It is one thing for us to say, I take God's word seriously. But it is something entirely different to let God's word break us and cause us to humble ourselves before God. It's important we understand God's word was not given just to impart information. It was given to transform our lives so we could be more like Jesus. What we read in God's word is meant to have a transformative impact upon our lives. But the only way it can do this is if we are broken and if we are humbled over the things God's word challenges us about. As we read God's word, as we hear God's word preached, there should always be times where we are broken and humbled by the way our lives are out of sync with what God's word reveals as God's will. And when I say there should be times like this, I absolutely mean for every single one of us, we should have times like this. The only reason, the only way it could ever be where we don't have those times is if we have arrived. If we can look full on in the mirror and say, I am as much like Jesus as any human could possibly get. Then we would not have these times. But unless we are just like Jesus. And there really there will always be some way in which our life, our beliefs, our actions, our reactions, our values and our priorities and our speech and, and various things will be out of sync with God's word. And as long as there's that time, then there should always be something. Now, this may not be maybe it's not every day. Maybe it's not. But it should be pretty regularly. Right? I mean, if we're in the word on a regular basis, there's just a lot in there. I, I, I say this often, but. When I hear people say being a Christian is easy. I just I mean, I just have to conclude they've never actually read the Bible. I mean, it's it's not easy. I mean, I'm not even talking about like go to all the world and make disciples of all nations. I'm just talking about like turn the other cheek. I don't know how you are. That's not easy for me. Love your enemies. Do good to those that despitefully use you. I don't know about you. That's not easy for me. I'm going to be honest. That's hard for me. I, to, 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 to think of others as more important than myself. To not merely look out for what I want, but the interest of others. I find that difficult. And so, I mean, there are there should be in all of our lives because it is difficult because we haven't arrived. There will be these times. Now, let me say this. These times don't mean that we're terrible people. It means we're flawed, sinful humans living in a flawed, sinful place, doing hopefully our dead level best to live for a perfect God. And that's going to make for some stumbles along the way, some challenges, some difficulties, some hard times in being who that God wants us to be.
But I think we have a choice, not only in how we respond in those times, but how we view those times. When I was young in the Lord, just got out of the army, I felt like every time I went to church, I came to the altar. I mean, every service just left me broken. And one night I was telling my brother, I live with my brother, and I said, I, I literally must be the worst Christian in Fort Gibson, Oklahoma. I mean, I, I can't I can't make it a night without having to go down there and repent of something. I, I'm just the worst. I, I, I said, I, I told him, I said, I'm beginning to dread going to church. I just feel like it's constantly, Stacy, you're terrible. And he said, but he said, you could look at it that way. Or you could get excited about it. I said, I don't understand what there is to get excited about. And he said, God's working on you. He hasn't given up on you. He's saying to you, there's something better I have for you than what you're currently living. That there's something, what you're doing is wrong, yes, but, but there's something better I want for you. He said, if you think of it like that, and it's an exciting time for the Lord to be working on you. I mean, that was, my brother's a goofer sometimes, but that was, that was amazing to me. I was just blown away. That has been helpful to me all throughout my life since then. And one more thing that's, that I think is important is notice the mercy in this, right? Josiah clearly has not been perfect himself. Yes, he has this deep devotion to the Lord. Yes, he takes God's word seriously. But what are the odds that Josiah is the only person in God's word other than Jesus that get it all right all the time? Seems unlikely. And yet, because he responded in this way, because he was broken, because he took it seriously, because he humbled himself before the Lord, he received mercy from God. What do you think will happen when the word of the Lord convicts us And we respond as Josiah did. We tremble at the word. We go before the Lord. We seek him out with humility and with brokenness, crying out for mercy for ourselves. I think we will always find mercy. I think we will always find grace. I think that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. There there is always this mercy for us. And one last thing. And this is something I don't guess I caught actually until I was reading it just now. Josiah's, his brokenness, his taking God's word seriously and responding with humility to the Lord. It not only gave a time of mercy to him. But everyone else in the kingdom. Received a reprieve as well. They had through the length of Josiah's life. To begin to deepen their devotion to God. To begin to take God's word seriously. And respond to God's word with humility and brokenness. So that when the judgment came. It wouldn't be coming for them. I I wonder. I wonder who in our lives. Might get an overflow of the mercy shown to us if we were to respond in this way. How would the mercy God shows to us as we come to him in humility and brokenness? How would it abound out of our lives and onto those around us? For surely we know 
hard-hearted people. To be sure, we know people who are in rebellion against God. We know people for whom the curses of God's word are going to fall upon them at some point in their lives. How might our receiving mercy because we are devoted to God, because we are taking his word seriously, because we are humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God through his word. How might the mercy that comes into our life splash onto them and give them more time of a reprieve as well? Listen, how we respond to God's word matters. It matters immensely. It matters for us and it matters for the world and the people around us. Everyone always responds to God's word every time they hear it or every time they read it. There is no neutrality. No one gets to decide not to decide. In the moment the word of God is spoken to us, in the moment the word of God comes into our minds as we read it, we are immediately brought into a place where we must respond. And how we respond demonstrates the level of, or not the level, it demonstrates the reality of our devotion to God. How we respond either demonstrates our deep devotion to God or it denies with our actions a deep devotion to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Thank you, Lord, for your word and the guidance it gives. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit that makes it living and active and Reveals things to us from it. Thank you Lord for mercy. Thank you for grace. Thank you that when we respond with brokenness and humility. And we throw ourselves at your mercy. We find an abundance of mercy. Where sin did abound. Grace did much more abound. Let us be a people who rely on that, Lord. Let us be a people who look to you when we blow it, who tremble when we're out of sync with you, and who live in the mercy and the grace in which you provide. Father, based upon what we see here, we do ask that the mercy and the grace you pour out into us would splash over to the rebels around us. Lord, I know that they will not receive the grace of Christ apart from personal repentance and faith, but but maybe grant them the mercy of a reprieve for a while. Give them another opportunity to devote their lives to you. Another opportunity to take your word seriously. Another opportunity to humble themselves before you. We love you, Lord. Have your way in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.